invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 2 this Pentecost Sunday. And before we dive in, don't you just love when movie makers make a movie out of a book? I don't know about you. I'm not much of a book reader, it seems like, when it comes to those movies that I see based on books. But it does happen here and there for me. And I kind of find, I kind of find myself to be with the majority of opinions, and that is I'm disappointed in the movie. I'm bummed because we read books for ourselves and we have nothing but our imaginations depicting the events we're reading. And sometimes our imagination is the best movie producers, right? Sometimes uh, we have everything down to the color of the hair and what the faces look like. And if the author doesn't tell us anyways, we know what happened on a rainy day at dusk, <laughs> And we, we know the clothes they were wearing. We know the sounds that their feet made as one chased the other. We just have great imaginations at times. I have found that that is the case for some people with passages in the Bible. I have surprisingly ran into the phrase from time to time, well, I've always imagined it happened this way. And then people stick to their preconceived, imagined understanding of their belief about a certain passage even in the face of basic, sound, plain reading of the Scripture. <laughs> like, uh, well, what this says right here in the Bible clearly contradicts with what you're saying it says. And it usually does two things for the person. It usually unfazes them. Or it sometimes causes them to get defensive. <laughs> so I, by the pleading with the Holy Spirit, am going to present to you what I think will be the most sound, basic, plain reading of this story in Acts 2. And it will be disagreed on with some of you. And I wish I could give sinners more credit that we will all walk away. And that those of us who had beliefs about this passage that may have been wrong have suddenly been changed. And I wish I could walk away preaching exactly what you want to hear. So you won't either take disagreement or get offended, or be defensive. Uh, I need to make room for the possibility of grace that another miracle might happen like that of Pentecost, and everyone walks away happy and in agreement. But I confess up front that my expectations are low. So have grace with me as I'm about to preach the movie of one of your favorite books, if you catch my illustration. Hopefully I'm preaching the book and you really have the movie, but... Prepare to be disappointed, some of you. With that exciting, inviting, and encouraging preface, I invite you to stand and read with me. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. 
And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, I believe I have enough faith in you to come to a passage like this. And though it be debated that you can bring forth life for us, that you could speak to us in a way that all of us hear your voice. And it is my prayer that each of us would in turn respond to the way, respond the way that you would have us respond. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us fresh today. We invite you to, to interpret these words and give them, to the, give them to us. So that more than just comprehending what you're saying, but rather we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that transformation in our mind would move to our hearts and our actions. Father, would you move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. We thank you for this opportunity we have to hear from your word. We ask and pray all this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As we hone in on this event in the broader context of the book of Acts, we must know that this is a direct result of the 120 gathered in the upper room at the command of Jesus. So it tells us Acts chapter 1, 13 through 15. That all the disciples are there, the women are there, Jesus' mothers and brothers are there, and the total number of persons is about 120. And they are there waiting for what happens in our passage today, namely the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus told them would happen. I said in my first sermon in Acts that the Spirit was necessary to accomplish the Great Commission, and that the Spirit's that is the Spirit's purpose, and that is to bring about the global church. One commentator states, before the witnesses could preach, they must be empowered. What we see in this story, though, is really unity in God and unity for God. See, the gathered 120 and eventually the multitude will be united in God because the Spirit unites them. And they unite them for God, not for themselves, or not just for the sake of being united. The outline of my sermon follows then that it is the, that the church is united in spirit, the church is united in message, and finally the church is united in God. United in spirit, united in message, and united in God. And what do you know? All those start with the word united, huh? How did that happen? <laughs> In the first four verses, we see the church united in spirit. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Got to do a little background or else we'll miss something that I don't want you to miss. Pentecost literally means 50th day because it was 50 days after the Sabbath or the Saturday of Passover week. So this particular Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was 50 days after the day Jesus was dead in the tomb being guarded. Leviticus 23 lays out the mandate for what the day of Pentecost originally was. There it is called the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. The Bible is filled with symbolism. So if you're not picking it up, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The first Passover in Exodus is when really after nine huge times that Pharaoh had to repent, nine plagues to relent, and let God's people go, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, if you don't let God's people go, everybody's firstborn is going to die. And again, Pharaoh had, has had chance after chance to let God's people go. And this is a fair warning here. So it's not like God's showing up out of nowhere, vindictive and angry. I'm going to kill everybody's firstborn. No, you have had nine chances. Well, God tells Moses that the angel of death would take the Hebrews' firstborns as well unless they took an unblemished lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their homes there in Egypt. Why all the killing and sacrificing in blood? It's to symbolize this is what I deserve. And I deserve what's being done to these animals whenever I sin. But the picture of grace is that because of another being's blood, in this case an unblemished lamb, the consequences of my sin are being passed over. And well, we see the greater symbolism of this in Jesus, because of his broken body and shed blood, voluntarily laid down by himself, and I want you to hear that, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. Jesus is not obligated to do this. He says, but I lay it down of my own accord. And because he did that for us, our sins are passed over once and for all if we profess faith in him. So after celebrating this tradition at Passover, the festival of weeks, seven weeks, number of completion, another symbol, comes at Pentecost. But Pentecost has yet a third name. It's called, it's called the Feast of Harvest as well. And Pente Pentecost itself is called the Day of First Fruits. So tells us, Numbers 28, 26. So do you hear the symbolism in all this? The Passover takes place. Jesus died for our sins. And so the consequences, the wrath of God would pass over us. Seven weeks later, Jesus has ascended. It's done. It's complete. A harvest is about to take place. And on Pentecost, the day of first fruits, we're going to see the first fruits of the harvest of Jesus' church. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Because Luke puts the word they, and the only antecedent I see 
as I've previously mentioned, is the 120 mentioned in Acts 1. That's the idea I'm going with, that the 120 were all gathered. The one place could still be the upper room that they're in. In the passage we looked at last week, when Matthias was chosen as Judas' replacement. Well, I can't say this better than one of my commentaries. I like how this is worded. He says, the idea is that all 120 of the disciples were present. They had been waiting, watching, and praying with the same heart for at least 10 days since the ascension. He would go on to say that in essence, Christ has commanded them to wait. Christ has given them the great commission in reaching the world. And Christ has given them the promise, the great promise of the Holy Spirit. So this task and this promise, the commentary would then say, made all other causal life events pale in comparison. No one left to pursue other interests. That convicted me. (laughs) I have to say, I have to ask, do we have that devotion today? We have a great commission. We have a great power in the Holy Spirit. Do we go about our days cognizant of our mission? Do we go about our days seeking power and effectiveness to carry out our mission? Or are there other interests apparently more captivating? And I bring this up not to condemn anyone, but to confess I do. (laughs) There are a lot more interesting things. For these disciples, the waiting is not in vain. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see here that the Holy Spirit began moving in around in and around these 120 believers in three manifestations, audibly, visually, and verbally. Audibly, visually, and verbally. Verse 2 shows us the audible manifestation. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So this was my first disappointment because I had the perfect movie in my mind. Before I read closely, I I pictured this differently. Luke writes, and suddenly there came from heaven a what? A sound, not a wind. There wasn't a breeze. The drapes weren't floating in the wind. They probably didn't even have drapes. Peter's beard wasn't fluttering because Peter was shaved at the time. No, I don't know. But what came wasn't wind, but it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. What filled the entire house? Not wind, but a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. This is what it sounded like, is what Luke is saying. Because the people I talked to, when I wrote down, they couldn't word it any other way. They just heard something. What did they hear? Well, it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Indication, there's no actual blowing wind. So what did they see if they didn't see things moving because of wind? That's the visual manifestation of the Holy Spirit here in verse 3. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Similar to the word like in verse 2 is the words as of in verse 3. It obviously wasn't truly genuine fire showing up. 
unless if they were being burned to death or if God was doing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to them. But the fire rested on them. The word divided suggests that perhaps at first there was one pillar of fire and then it divided on them. We don't know if it was on their heads, their shoulders, their knees, or toes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. And it's really not important for the most minute detail. The audible, I throw in jokes to keep you interested. <laughs> the audible manifestation. So that was the wind. And then the visual manifestation, tongues of fire. And now the verbal manifestation, speaking in tongues. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Could it be that, that verses that come to the center of an argument among Christians contain within its verse something else that seems to be a little bit more demanding of our attention. See, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all important, but a key phrase in this verse that inhabits the entire point of this passage are these words, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I unashamedly, wholeheartedly, without apology, believe that that's the point of this passage. It is not building up to, nor are we supposed to see the climax be, oh, they spoke in tongues. But rather, three manifestations of the Spirit, audible, visual, and now verbal, to climax and reveal the Holy Spirit is filling people. This is what they were told to wait for to begin with, the the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not just the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence through speaking in tongues. In fact, in the greater context of Acts 2, Peter gives a sermon after this event, and what does he climax it on? He climaxes it on a prophecy from Joel about the Holy Spirit falling out on people, and he doesn't mention the fact that they spoke in tongues, but rather that the Spirit would enable them to prophesy. Yes, this is part of the passage, the verbal manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues. But the climax, the point, and the general crux of Luke's story here is the Holy Spirit-filled believers. And we know because we heard the sound, we saw that fire, and they spoke miraculously like this. The Holy Spirit is here. Now, I can't talk about speaking in tongues without taking sides. (laughs) And I don't say that because I'm glad I'm taking sides, but I say that because it's impossible to come across any other way. (laughs) Because if I teach it this way, those people will say, you're wrong, you're taking a side. And if I teach it that way, the this way people will say, well, no, you're taking sides. (laughs) And could it be, this is a novel concept, it's why I went to Bible college, something happened here, and someone's right, and someone's wrong. Is that, is that, are you following me? (laughs) Is that fair enough? Okay. I love you, and if you disagree with me, I'm not surprised. I won't lose sleep, and I won't feel rejected, and you shouldn't either. (laughs) Because I'm telling you what really happened, and you still disagree. No, just kidding. (laughs) I told this pen not to move. So I was joking, kind of. Anyways, um, and they, who are they? The 120 gathered. Luke has given us the recipients at the beginning of this verse, the recipients of the events that are described in the remaining of the sentence. The 120 were gathered and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the idea of a conjunction 
and the predicate means that both things described in this part refer back to the subject. So the 120 were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the 120 all began to speak in other tongues. Well, what are those other tongues? Are they angelic? Are they esoteric? Are they otherworldly? Are they supernatural? And I think, thankfully, the rest of the passage really gives us no room to wiggle, but states rather plainly what other tongues they spoke in. And we'll get there. Also important, though, is that these 120 spirit-filled believers started speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's how I picture it. This is my movie in my head. That suppose, I don't know, I'm just picking someone at random. Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she's there. Suppose she starts speaking. And then suppose the Spirit gave Peter utterance. And then a few seconds later, the Spirit gave our infamous friend, Doubting Thomas, utterance. And then a few seconds later, then Nathaniel. And then maybe the Spirit gave both John and James utterance at the same time because they have to do everything together. That's the idea that I get. So these three manifestations sound like a rushing wind, visible tongues of fire, verbally speaking in tongues, is getting the picture across that it is none other than God of the universe filling these believers. See, the Old Testament shows us that when God shows up in wind, he brings dead bones back to life, such as Ezekiel prophesying over the dry bones. And he calls the winds from the four corners of the earth to come and bring these bones back to life. John the Baptist said that Jesus would bring a baptism of spirit and of Fire, fire both purifies and cleanses. So God is coming upon these believers in a powerful, purifying life. The point being is that the disciples, the 120 gathered, are united in spirit in God. And the Holy Spirit has filled all of them. And now the Spirit is prompting all of them to speak. What are they saying? So we move on to the fact that they are united in message, verses 5 through 11. Read that with me. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Wow, Americans were there. No, just kidding. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The message is for Jews and Gentiles, that is Jews and everybody else in the world, and it is about God. Luke, the Holy Spirit, God is giving us a preview to the apostles for a greater theme about to be played out later in the book of Acts, in other words, later in church history. That is the church, the message is going to all the world. So first, it's Pentecost. We know that there are many pilgrims here in Jerusalem. In fact, some historians would suggest that Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, was actually a more heavily attended feast than Passover. 
because the time of Passover was also coupled with worse weather conditions. So suppose you had to be with family at either Christmas or Easter, and you're saying, I'm choosing Easter because the roads will be better. That was kind of the idea here. So some say Pentecost saw bigger crowds. In the list of nations and peoples, we are given an overview somewhat of the entirely known world of Rome. But intriguingly, there were some nations and peoples that Luke passed over, excuse the pun. And the idea is not that uh, Luke didn't like those guys, but it's actually giving us a little bit more validity that this is a true thing that Luke interviewed people and those nations weren't mentioned. (laughs) The idea, though, is that God said when the Holy Spirit would come, the witnesses would testify to Judea, the Jews, Samaria, kind of like half Jews, and eventually the world or Gentiles. And we're seeing here on this Pentecost Sunday the world already hearing the message. About hearing the message, is the miracle this day concerning tongues in the speaking or in the hearing or both? It seems rather clear for me, and impossible to argue, which doesn't stop people from arguing it, that the miracle is in the speech. (laughs) We read in verse 4, And they were all, so again, the 120 Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit filled them. They began to speak. One translation, I'm reading a lot, MEV, would say the Spirit enabled them to speak. So as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit is filling and enabling the Christians to speak. What are they speaking Well, let's ask the gathered multitude who heard them. Have they had anything to say about that? And verse 6, and at this sound, so some would argue, because that's we have nothing better to do when we study the Bible, some would argue that the sound uh, was maybe the mighty rushing wind sound. Others say it was the sound of 120 people speaking, eventually all at once. Whatever the sound was, the multitude came together. So some would already point out, If we tried to gather even 120 in this room, it'd be a little hot and stuffy. So when the multitude came together, that means the 120 people are probably walking out of the upper room and the disciples or the crowds are gathering. And some say that likely the temple courtyard, which is big enough to gather all these people, maybe that's where they're joining. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So verse 6 tells us that the hearers of these 120 were hearing them speak in their own language. Verses 7 and 8 even reiterate it for us. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? If you read the Passion account and Peter is outside while Jesus is getting was going through trial, some of them pick on Peter's Galilean accent. Because you get this idea that Galilee was like the deep south of its culture, (laughs) right? Now, I have brothers who live in Georgia, and man, they sound funny. But I go down there. I remember when me and Christy were dating, I went down there, and uh, she called me up, and after a while she says, why are you speaking in that accent? It's so easy to pick up. And some would say that their accent makes them sound a little bit less educated even. But again, they said, the crowd says they hear their own native language. Any of you ever been in an airport, maybe a foreign airport, 
And whenever you hear 14 languages going on at the same time, you sometimes have your ears perked up whenever you finally hear English. Oh, home! That's the idea that I get for this huge crowd hearing over 120 people talking. And I'm not saying that 120 languages were being spoken. But they at once single out their own. Verse 11, at the end of the long list of nations, again, we have it reiterated. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the point being that the miracle happened, let's just say again, for example's sake, uh, the other Judas, the guy who likes to go by Thaddeus, let's just say he spoke probably Greek and Hebrew, normally, maybe a little Aramaic. And whenever he started speaking, whatever the native tribes of the Cyrenians spoke, Thaddeus had not prior to studied that language. He just started speaking it. That's a, that's a miracle. And so the miracle of the message is that out of these 120 speaking, the different languages represented by all the people's groups gathered were being spoken by the 120, um, empowered and enabled by the Spirit. And they heard their native tongue naturally just as you hear me today or you might hear English in a crowd of foreigners. And the message unites the people. So the Spirit united the disciples by filling them all. Now the message, though it's being spoken in different languages, are uniting the people because it's the same message being spoken. The 120 disciples are basically giving out verbal Bibles and every translation needed if you catch my drift. Different languages, same message. The Spirit unites all believers by, by filling them. And then the message unites all believers who, delivers, who deliver the same message, no matter what language. And we are all united in God. We look at verse 11 in a slightly different emphasis and end out the verses today. We see both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Amid the 120 disciples speaking in multiple languages, the crowd was able to discern among each other, likely in Greek, which was the proverbial English of its day, the common language known in trading, But they were able to talk to each other and realize that they were receiving in their own language the same message in their own birth language about the mighty works of God. And I would submit that it will be likely what is encompassed in Peter's sermon to follow, that that's kind of what they were hearing. That God came and dwelt among humanity and that only seven weeks prior, only 50 days ago, he was crucified. But the crucifixion did not ultimately end in death but in resurrection, which reveals that believers in him can also take refuge in the Passover lamb in Jesus Christ, who dies for our sins and gives us new life. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Peter's going to answer that question next week. I guess you'll have to come back to find out. But others mocking. One commentator suggested that this is the possibility that the others here must be Jerusalem residents because they apparently didn't believe or know what other languages were being spoken. And they didn't know that these were comprehensive sentences that was being spoken, that the crowd around them understood. But rather, 
they quickly suspected the disciples, well, they are filled with new wine. Knowing sinners, like I do, because I am one, and knowing unbelievers, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the stubborn mockers argued with foreigners who were saying emphatically over and over, no, they can't be drunk. They just gave me, you know, what amounts to a gospel account in my own language. That's quite a story to recite while you're drunk. Whatever, they're drunk. Unsaved people and unbelievers, as one of my commentary states, always look for a naturalistic explanation of supernatural work. You know this and I know this. Jesus didn't die. He fainted for three days. Or he's not resurrected. They never produced a body. The world doesn't have an intelligent designer, but were accidents created from an ancient cosmic belch, because that's easier to believe in. That tumor didn't magically disappear after your church prayed for it. The doctors misdiagnosed it. And it's not because these things are really even hard to believe in, or that they don't have the right information, or that there's missing information. It's because they don't want to believe in it to begin with. It's because it's starting from a heart that wants to rebel and ignore and dismiss and do whatever it can to not be held accountable in the soul. So they'll come up with what harder things to believe in to explain what they just don't want to believe in. So we come to this end of this passage. And again, I'm sure some of you are like, nope, my movie's better. And uh, I'll go back to the book. You're wrong, Kevin. And the actor for Peter was much more impressive looking in my mind. You know. You get my drift. But the broader point is, is that what we can take away is that the believers are one in God and they're one for God. They are united in spirit. Whatever you believe about tongues and what I believe about tongues, the same spirit is filling you and me. And it's not about tongues. It's about the spirit filling you and me. We're united in message. The spirit has a message he wants to get to the world and the message is that there is one God and His name is Jesus Christ. And He came to this world and He crossed the great divide. And the message is that while every other religion tells you to work yourself to God, the good news is that He worked Himself to us. And every other religion says work, give, and produce. Jesus' message is rest, receive, and bear fruit. And while every God of this world needs your performance before you are loved, our one true God performed for you because you are loved. And so that's the united message we bring, united by the Spirit, because we aren't united just for unity's sake. We're united for God's sake. God's our God, and He's our leader, and He's our final rule. And He says to love Him and love others and to do it well. And when God's the one uniting us, it means we will have His desires and His heart for people. That we don't want to see people swallowed up in sin, overcome by sin and living in their sin, but we want to see them saved from sin and overcoming their sin and living in freedom because that's what our God offers. Amen? That is the message and that is the hope that's going to save 3,000 souls gathered this first Pentecost Sunday. Let's pray. Father, as we sang the song, I love to tell the story and this Phil charged us to be careful about what we're singing. And we all, at least I, identified with that fear 
of telling the story to people who may not receive it well. Help us to take hope in this, that your spirit is filling us. Your spirit is going before us. We're speaking, even sometimes, even though we both speak English, we don't speak the same language, it seems like, with some people. And help us to know that your spirit can use us in a way so that people we come into contact to can hear what we're saying. And to know that your spirit is at work throughout all of this. We're just being a willing vessel. Father, help us to be obedient to that. Help us to know that the God we share is a God of love, a God who has forgiven sins, and a God who inhabits his people. And we pray that that message would be one that we would carry even this week. Help us to bring the message to other people, both in action and also in word, and to the people that you would direct us to. And help us to be okay whenever we're rejected. Help us to know that their soul does not live or die on what we say or do, but it lives or dies on what you have done in their reception of that. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would be with us today and help us to carry this with us as we go about our week. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.